find Psalm 142. We'll actually read the first three verses eventually as we study through it. But we're going to begin with just one verse, Psalm 142, verse 1. We'll pray after that, and then we will... Then we'll get started. Psalm 142, verse 1. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I adore You, God. And I am thankful, Father, for the opportunity to come and stand before You, Father God, and prayerfully and humbly preach these things, God, that, um, of which I am a beneficiary, Father God, but not the author. It was not my blood, Father God, that was shed for the sins of many. It was not my life, Father God, that was lived in perfection, Father God, for the good of mankind. It was not my, my death, Father God, that was the sacrifice for the sins of all, Father God. It was not mine. I only declare one so much infinitely greater than myself, Father God, that, but I'm, that I'm really a smudge in comparison to, Father. You, God, you, God, have died for the sins of the world. God the Son has given His life that we might live. So Father God, right now as I come and as I preach this Gospel, Father God, I pray God that I do it, Lord, with, with boldness and confidence and surety in it, but I do it without any arrogance, Father God, because I am not its heart, but that Jesus is. So pray now, Father God, as we come as a people together, that we would cry out to You, Lord, and that You, Lord, would, would, would hear our pleas. I pray, Father God, for the loss that might be in this room. I pray for the loss that would be in the lives of the members of this church, Father God. I pray for anyone who's lost who might hear this in any way in which it is heard, Father. But I'm praying, God, today for salvation because it's salvation that's most important, that's most vital. Father God, it's salvation that opens our eyes and unstops our ears, Father God, and allows us to live lives um, not of shame and pain, but of redemption and of glory to You, Father God. I pray for that now, God. I pray, Lord, that Your Word is boldly declared today, as boldly as I can declare it, a sinner, Father God, saved by the very grace that I proclaim today. I pray for that now, God. In the name of Christ Jesus, Lord. Amen. Um, the churchman Horatius Bonner wrote this. He said, The gospel comes to the sinner at once with nothing short of complete forgiveness as the starting point of all his efforts to be holy. It does not say, Go and sin no more, and I will not condemn thee. It says at once, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The, the heart, soul, the goal, the mission today is for forgiveness. And now, I don't know your lives, but I know mine fairly well, and I've experienced the lives of others. And one of those things that I can say is there's nothing like being in that situation where you are desperately in need of forgiveness, where you have offenses that have stacked up to the very heavens, and that you begin with the one most offended, the one most insulted by your behavior, the one that, you've, that you have attacked the most, and that is the very living God. There are others in your life. There are others in creation that have been wounded by your actions. But it begins with God. Because all sin is ultimately against God. Even if there's collateral damage to our lives, 
ultimately we sinned against God. And so we need forgiveness from God first. So the quest today begins and really ends with an idea of forgiveness. Can we be forgiven? Now in Psalm 142, there's, there's desperation in David. I, I, he's, he's speaking for us in so many ways. I've uttered words like this. And, and, and if we we're born again, we've uttered words like this and they've been responded in kind, responded to in kind with the gospel. The desperation of David shines forth as he submits his sin to Christ our Lord by way of declaration and petition. He used his voice. Now I'm not saying to you today that where you sit right now, needing forgiveness, that you have to stand up and declare your sin. Or you have to come forward to this altar and declare your sin. But I'm here to tell you this. There, there is something soothing about being willing to put aside all decorum, all false modesty, and all foolish pride, and say, God, I, who stand before you, am a sinner. I have sinned against the living God. Because if we tell ourselves this lie that we can be sinful and hide in plain sight, that we can deal with our problems personally and individually between us and God and no one has to know. And that may work occasionally, but, but as Baptists, as evangelicals in the South, we understand that mechanism of being crushed on the back pew and having to stand up and walk forward, don't we? I remember doing it myself as a very young man, walking the aisle, coming forward, I don't remember my feet touching the ground. And it wasn't in joy. It was in the oddity of what I was doing. The out of place nature of coming to the altar. Of confessing your sinful nature to another human being. Whether it's a pastor in a suit or to a counselor or someone else. Or just to God on your knees at the altar. That The oddity of that. I tell you what. It denies that notion that we can slink out of here like a dog. And go home and deal with our issues in private. Because you just came from private and you didn't deal with your issues. You're always in private and you don't deal with your issues. The reality is, is that today, God calls to men and to women in the depths of their sin. And He demands that they react to an irreplaceable truth. He demands that they hear and that they respond. Because that is the nature of the gospel. It is a truth that demands an answer from people. And I'll tell you this. To sit here or to be somewhere else and to hear this gospel and do nothing is a response. It is a hurtful and hateful and disrespectful response to the truth that Christ died for. David's effort is intentional and it's volitional. Now what I mean by that is, is that he, he is required to do something. It, it has a purpose to it. And it requires His will. Now here's the reality is that as human beings we are will driven people. We have our own will. The problem is that our will always leads to destruction. It always leads away from the cross. It never leads to God. By itself. 
without the interaction of God with the truth, our will leads only to the gates of hell. And there's so many in this world that will follow their will right to a sinner's hell. And they'll never back down. What the gospel does is stand in the path, sword blazing, and demand... Demand that people stop their insane pursuit of their own way and reduce their way to actions so that they can rise from those very ashes. That's what the gospel demands every single day of people and what it demands right now. An intentional and volitional stopping of the pursuit of the fleshly desires of people. The will of David is crumbling in the face of the need of his spirit for mercy from and peace with God. It's absolutely true that we are surrounded by enemies. But the greatest enemy that any man or woman in this room separated from the truth has today is the living God. He's the greatest enemy. The greatest enemy is God the Father. Because he hates the way of our flesh. He despises it. Through an action that sounds so much like prayer. Now not the forced or remembered lines which we call prayer. I'm going to tell you today, one of the things we have to confront as we move forward through this is just how we pray. I'm going to teach a lesson on prayer today because I mean, the other two pastors in this church have talked so much about prayer over the last six months or a year. There's really nothing I can say left other than the fact that prayer is honest talk with an all-knowing God. The foolish man thinks he has hidden things from God. But yet God knows every beat of your heart and every breath of your lungs and every thought of your brain and every word uttered by your tongue and every deed of your lost life before the, the, before the foundation of the worlds were laid. He knew it all. You are no mystery to the living God and neither am I. We are hiding nothing from Him. So we ought to just be honest. Speak Honestly, not in a stilted way, not trying to impress God. I've used it as a joke before. I remember being a boy and it's continued throughout my church time, stand behind some man, usually an elderly gentleman that prays in these and thous. Like God speaks King James English naturally. Or he was Amish. Neither one being true. God doesn't talk like that. And God speaks your language. You can't elevate your your natural speaking to please Him. He can't be pleased by what men say naturally. What pleases God is total honesty. Because He knows everything. Because you can't lie to Him. And you can't fool Him. He knows. Heartfelt, deep cries... From the inside of an individual. What God wants to do today is get down deep inside of us. And pull out things that we can't even admit to ourselves. The lies that have sustained us. That have given us a false peace. He wants to overwhelm those things today. 
David models this by describing his efforts in, in, in verse 142, verse 2. He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Complaint. God knows those things, but yet David pours them out. Though salvation comes from the same root source and by the same power for each and every man or woman to whom it is given, the redemption and justification of people is individualized and personal in nature. Look, the same shed blood saves and the same truth, the gospel, brings us all to it. But each of us comes of our own accord and at a unique time that God has called to men and to women uniquely. Uniquely. Your daddy can't be saved for you. And your mama's righteousness is a gift of God. And not even her own. And so it doesn't extend to you. Your family can't be good enough and your father can't be respectful enough, respectable enough and your grandfather can't be important enough for the cross to automatically rest upon your shoulders. Salvation is unique and it's individual to the person. Despite the obvious truth of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 6.2 which says, For he says, I am in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a, the, in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul speaks to the wide distribution. What Paul does here is he talks about the wide distribution of saving truth. We'll cover that first. The wide, what I mean is this is that the truth surrounds us today. Think about when Paul uttered these words, it was the apostolic age. While the truth was brand new and, and much, of the, much of the canon of the New Testament was not codified yet, when he expressed these words and been written down and assembled with the rest, the reality was they were surrounded by the miracles of the apostolic age. The greatness, the glory of God was on display for everyone to see. When Paul spoke... The room shook. The winds of the Holy Spirit blew. You could not deny the power of God. And right now we are still confronted with exactly the same gospel. Yet preserved for us within the pages of scripture that are inerrant. Ready to be consumed. By the, by the hungry heart. Many of us have multiple copies of God's holy writ in our own homes. It's not rare where we are. You can hear gospel preaching in thousands of pulpits in this country. And around the globe. There's about 2 billion people that have almost no access to the Scriptures. There's no doubt about that. But at least almost 5 billion that are literally surrounded by the Gospel. Surrounded by the Gospel. It is widely distributed. There's no doubt. And the, there's impending judgment upon all who would reject it. That hearing it comes with responsibility. Don't assume... In this room today, that you have another opportunity to hear the gospel, because that is a lie. Because you do not. 
You have grown up, and many of us grown old, in a gospel-saturated country, and that comes with a huge responsibility to believe what we hear. God demands it today. Time demands it, because the times grow short. There'll come a time when the gospel, the very preaching of it, is going to be a rare occurrence in this world. We wish we could go back and leisurely sit in these pews and hear the most important truth ever uttered. And that is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we seek individually for ourselves and for others the promises of the verse that Paul refers to, the favorable time in which the courts of God hear the blood-soaked pleas of gospel-humbled hearts. That time in which there's a collision between truth and the sinner's heart and a new heart is given and now we can believe what God has decreed. Blood-soaked petitions of God-humbled hearts and long for opportunities for men and women to throw themselves on the mercy of a righteous and just Savior and Lord. What I'm declaring today is this. As the courts of mercy are open, throw yourself on the mercy of the court of God. The gospel promises of David in this psalm are best encapsulated in verse 3 which says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the trap where I walk, they have hidden, excuse me, in the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Even though we are attacked and hindered on all sides by enemies, internal and external, and that's right, you are your own enemy when your heart does not belong to Christ. You stand in your own way. But there are enemies outside of us too. There are principalities and powers of evil that want nothing more for you to reject the living God just one more time so they can gleefully cheer at your demise. When we drive nails into our own eternal coffins, Yet Christ Jesus, the very Lord of the favorable time and the God of the prescribed day of salvation, knows the fainting of the human spirit under the withering attack of sin and wickedness and knows the way of people. He knows where all the traps are. He knows where all the impediments are. And He will guide your path through them to the cross of the living God. He knows the way of people. He knows your way. Christ has an answer through the gospel and individually to our hearts at this very moment. That's right. It's not just the gospel. It is the gospel. But the gospel isn't just the details in the book. But it's a vibrant and it's a vital truth that has individually answers for you. This time in evil days has been redeemed for holy purposes and divine intents that are for the good of a people claimed by Jesus and freed by His blood. Jesus has redeemed this time so that people can hear the gospel. Look, our job as a church connecting men and women with the truth of salvation, the truth of Christ which leads to salvation, is the end product of the very call of the church. 
the only reason we exist is the preaching and teaching and display of the gospel. That's why God gave us the truth. Now, for any other reason, we can use the church for all sorts of purposes, but the only reason for it is the gospel. Reaching those who do not believe they need saving is the challenge that churches face. Is that we're surrounded by a whole lot of people because they've grown up bathed in the gospel. They think they know it and can possess it without practicing it. And we have to convince them that they need it. It's the hardest thing in the world. Now, the great Christian and commentator on the faith, C.S. Lewis, wrote this. He said, a, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might be even more difficult to save. It is so hard to save good people. They're good people. He's a good man. And they go to they go to work and they pay their taxes and they obey the law. And they're as lost as they can be. And because their sin on the inside has not erupted on the outside. Because they've managed to save and keep to the mercy of God. They'll never believe. It's so hard to convince them. For every human being alive today, every person except the unique Son of God who has ever drawn breath, the future is dependent on God's mercy. Every one of us. The condition of humanity is dire because the condition of humanity is fallen. Separate from, alien to, and constantly offending the Lord. See, without Christ Jesus, I am fallen I am separate from God, I'm alienated from God, and I constantly offend Him. Even when I try to keep the rules, I constantly offend God. Paul describes us as dead. That good man, that good woman, without Jesus, is dead. Both literally dying from sin and dead spiritually in sin. Plagued by the basic characteristics which define death. Lifelessness and hopelessness, right? Dead people have no life. And there's no hope in death. Dead people don't plan for tomorrow. Dead people don't dream about about next year, they're dead. They've ceased to exist physically. Death is devoid of power, vitality, possibility, and future. In Ephesians 2, 1-5, the Apostle describes men and women without Christ Jesus in salvation by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead in sin. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So salvation by grace, grace 
leading to faith, which gives us salvation, undoes the death and brings life. Washes away death and floods us with life in Christ. If we're saved today, then the interminable nightmare of death is over for us. If you are saved today, then the death that once reigned over you will be gone forever. The death that you dread, the death that robs you of everything, will be washed away in a fit of the goodness of Jesus. All that happens. Death that was once your reality is gone forever. Forever and ever. Paul's words which summarize the condition of mankind, the catastrophic addiction to walking the world's way, to following satanic influences. It's so hard for us to see that when we think we're good people. We do everything right. We will never see Satan as our very leader, but he is. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. He's the God of this world. As long as I follow the way of this world, I follow its master. The satanic influences overcome the lost, that overcome the self-righteous. To living in fleshly passions and to being subject to the slavery of a corrupt mind and an evil heart, as by nature children of the wrath of God. That's who we are. At core, condemned by wicked and, con- and contemptu- contemptuous toward God, hearts described by Jeremiah and Jeremiah 17.9 is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the heart you were born with. Deceitful above all things. And who does your heart lie to? You more than anybody else. Your heart thinks it's pulling a fast one. It thinks it's getting away with it. It always thought lies were the answer. Deceitful above all things, desperately sick. All the hope to which we cling is bound in the riches of the mercy of God and the grace by which He has chosen to save men and women undeserving of pardon and yet requiring suffering and death. That's where I don't deserve it. If God forgives me today, if God forgives you today, I do not deserve His forgiveness. I don't deserve His pardon. I deserve death and I deserve hell. Now, don't, don't walk out of this room believing anything separate than that. We deserve condemnation. Our sins require it. It is the wages of sin. Death itself. The enemy which is assaulted is within our own beings. Hearts so terrible and so dreadful that they must be excised, cut out surgically with power and precision by the truth of the gospel. God is going to do a radical spiritual surgery in which a dead heart is taken from you, a heart of stone, and you're given a heart of flesh, malleable, that can respond to the gospel. Because the heart you were born with is incapable of responding to the gospel. The Bible is abundantly clear. God has to do a work in you before you can hear the gospel and respond. In practice, we will be more of a hindrance to the world today, church, if we lack conviction for the truth, even if we have expanding knowledge of it. So I'm going to speak to the truth to the church for just a moment. We've got to get on board with this idea. We've got to get on board with the idea that the gospel is the only hope for mankind. I know we believe that intellectually. What I'm asking you is that you do you live that literally? 
Can you honestly say that every single moment of every day is dominated by the gospel? Or is it overwhelmed by the world? Because I tell you what, there's a lot of believers out there, true, real, possessing Christ Jesus believers, who walk through their lives every single day without giving the gospel or the Christ of the gospel an afterthought. If they did not say grace over meals, they'd never even utter His name. Never. Oswald Chambers wrote this, he said, If in preaching the gospel you substitute your knowledge of the way of salvation for confidence in the power of the gospel, you hinder people from getting to reality. Some of us know the path. We've memorized it. Memorized it. But do we have confidence in it? Do I believe that the solution for my lost neighbor is just the gospel? Only the gospel. Only the cosmic influence of God, the Holy Spirit, felt through the dynamism, the power and virtue of the good news of Christ Jesus. That is the association of the completed works of Jesus on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the entire world with the individual sin debt of each person called by the risen Lord to new life. Once again, we bring together a collision of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the sins of men. We arrange a crashing together of divine truth and the sin of people. Only this can end the terror of transgression and shame. And there's lots of people in this world right now, maybe in this room, certainly within the sound of my voice, who are living in the terror of transgression and shame. They're living a nightmare that never ends. Beset by shame, by their own failings, their own faults. Look, it's not just that Christ's death was powerful and expansive enough to atone for every sin committed by every person to ever exist, but that power must be translated to each individual person for the purpose of their salvation. If not individually applied through the grace by faith, as Paul says it in, in Ephesians 2 8 through 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only hope for people would then be universalism. Salvation not individually applied to all. Excuse me, salvation individually applied to all without the distinction of God. And that's patently unscriptural. There's not a, not a word of the Scripture to support that. Salvation is a function of the sovereignty of God given to humanity by the method of illuminating a covenantal new heart through divine truth. A new heart believes the gospel. That's pastuo belief. And it leads to grace. By grace you've been saved through faith. A gift of God. So that no one can boast. All that the gospel promises comes to man or woman free of charge. Too infinitely costly to be afforded, too uh, precious to be sold, too valuable to be earned. The truth of Jesus is freely given today and there's no way that anyone who does not possess salvation can do well enough to receive it. You can't be good and get this. You can't change your ways. You can't get your life right. You can't stop doing this or stop doing that. 
There's no collection of stoppings that can start the gospel for you. Are things going to stop? You better believe it. When God overwhelms your life with the truth of the gospel, when He overwhelms you with sin and regret, when when He overcomes you with conviction, you'll be willing to turn your back on things you never thought you'd give up. Things you think you need. The things that define you. He'll destroy in an instant. But you can't give up enough things on your own to ever earn your salvation. Freely bestowed, the truth radically saves. Exacting its price by transforming your life in every way into the image of God. That's what He wants to do today. You hear me? He wants to make you, remake you into the image of God. He doesn't want to save you just enough to get you into heaven. That's man's lie. Just holy enough to get into heaven, but still hanging on to this world? Baloney. It'll never happen. You can't hang on to this world. You're called on to abandon this world, to turn your back on this world, to hate your life in this world, to despise even your own righteousness. Because it's not good enough for the kingdom of God. He's looking down upon your life today and saying, don't perish because you're hanging on to things that are dragging you to hell. Don't cling to things that don't matter. Don't go down with a sinking ship when you can swim to safety. But that's what people are doing. Timothy Keller said this, I asked what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this, If I were saved by by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing He cannot ask of me. I think so many people in the church today want the opposite of that statement. They want to earn it a little bit so so that they don't owe God everything. But anybody in this room within the sound of my voice who is truly born again is born again because you owe God everything. You owe God every minute of every day. Total allegiance. Absolute obedience. That's what we owe God. You don't get to keep anything because what you receive is infinitely everything. God demands that today. And He's looking in the hearts of some here or somewhere else that are listening to this. He is looking in the hearts of some. He's saying, give up on that and get what you can never lose. Give up on that and get the keys to heaven. At this moment, the beautiful dictatorship of the gospel is beckoning to our hearts, to hearts in this room Saying, trade your future of indulgence leading to death for the bondage which leads to life. But Paul says just as much in Galatians 1.10. For, I'm now seeking the appro- for am I now seeking the approval of man? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I could, would not be a servant of Christ. If you're going to be His, you can't please any man including yourself. If you're going to be His, 
You can't please your wife and you can't please your children. You can only please God. And when what they want is at odds with what God wants, God must win in your life. Because that's what it means to be His. Praise God that for each of us a new day can dawn today. And after this we will no longer be slaves to the flesh trying to please men, but bound sons of the living God by way of the gospel. Turn loose from bondage to this world. Eternally bound to God. Sold out and enslaved to righteousness. Not belonging to ourselves. Servants loving what God loves and despising all sin. Our freedom is the response to light having broken in our darkest days and most corrupt moments. You're never going to get it together enough to see it. If darkness surrounds you today, understand this. The light has never feared the darkness. The darkness has never overcome the light. The dimmest candle, the weakest flame, chases away the darkness around it. The infinite glory of the light of Christ chases away darkness infinitely. No matter how corrupt or dark your days are right now, understand this much. The light of the glory of the Son of God will chase away that darkness forever. Forever. Matthew in Matthew 4.16, he's quoting Isaiah 9.2, says this, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. In that day when darkness surrounds you, Use your voice to cry out for God to bring the gospel light of Jesus to your impenetrable night. No matter how dark it is around you, cry out. If you were lost in in a dark wood, you'd cry out that someone, anyone might hear you. And if you're lost in the darkness of sin, then cry out. And God will hear. And He'll bring the gospel light of Jesus and chase away your darkness. The day will blessedly dawn if you'll turn your face to the King of Kings. The only source of light and goodness for lost humanity. Turn your face to Jesus today and receive His light. Do this now before it's everlasting too late. Because there will come a time when night, when night for the lost will last forever. Darkness will overwhelm you then, eternally. While the light is offered, cry out for mercy and seek the light.